Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Lit, you lucky ducks. <laughs> my name, <laughs> my name is Nick Argyris, and this week I'm looking, I'm looking for the best big city book. <laughs> Do you want to reconsider that accent? <laughs> no, I think I'll double down on it. Oh boy! The rest of the episode, we're going to be getting. Do you big city slickers want to show me about the big city this week? I'm not sure if it's an old man or a southern person. <laughs> no, it's, it's Foghorn Leghorn. Like, like the, the no, best. I say well, the best. I'm sorry you heard it that way. <laughs> uh, to help me are two friends and high school English teachers, Ian and Joe. I think it's so nice that friends comes before high school English teachers. I, I friends think of before high so school often English it, teachers. That's the expression. <laughs> uh, Nick, I do have a big city book for you this week. It's not the biggest city, but uh, maybe okay. some people call it America's second city. I have a book about Chicago, that uh, metropolis of the Midwest. Uh, and I have more specifically a book about what it's like being a young black man in Chicago in 19, oh, I don't know, 25 or so. Um, I brought Native Son, the Richard Wright book starring, oh, I like starring, starring Bigger (laughs) Thomas. Hello, and welcome to You Don't Know Lit, starring Nick Argyris as the Swedish chef, Joe Holshue as himself, and introducing me, Dr. Ian DeYoung, as Robin Wright. I'm a high school English teacher, and Nick, if you're looking for a big city book, I would recommend Ralph Ellison's novel, Invisible Man. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely (laughs) enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. (laughs) Who who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. (laughs) (laughs) And how big is the city in your book, Ian? Because my, my city is pretty big. To quote one of its most famous and least problematic residents. Yes. It's huge. It's tremendous. Huge. Correct. It's It's New York City. Some would say Uh, the largest city. Some would say the largest city in the known universe. I would think that's wrong. Is that the first city? Well, if Chicago is the second city, I do think New York City is the first city. Like that is what that (sighs) refers to. Is LA bigger than Chicago though? I don't think it's about size. I think it's about chutzpah. I think it's about chutzpah. Chutzpah? <laughs> chutzpah? I don't know. LA I, don't, is- I think chutzpah's like singularly like trapped in the vicinity of Manhattan. I think that's where chutzpah <laughs> oh, lives boy. and dies. Um, I, I will say, as someone who lives relatively near to chutzpah. Uh, Los Angeles, <laughs> and as someone who has lived near Chicago, mm-hmm. there is just as much like SoCal pride as there is Chicago pride. I think like oh. it's not really LA pride. It's more like SoCal pride, but it's a strange mm-hmm. thing. I, I don't really know which would be second. Mm-hmm. I don't know what SoCal means, but um, it's, it's like locale alcohol. Like it's a, it's a diet. It's like a locale thing. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. A new diet, yeah. new West coast diet. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you just do low calories. Uh, well, <laughs> Thank you for explaining that joke. Yeah. Now this is podcasting. <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't 
think there's a single way that could be funny. <laughs> I don't think there's a single way we could make now this is podcasting funny. No, you know what you should Ever. do is nobody in the, in the edit make the, the conversation that we had before this like a cold open and then go into like the intro music. And then when it comes back, <laughs> it'll be a callback. Joe's actually explaining how to make it funny. <laughs> I think that no, 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 work. no, no. I got it. I got it. I got it. Here's how you do the edit. <laughs> <laughs> edit your own fucking podcast. <laughs> uh, Joe, welcome. Thanks. Uh, Ian, welcome to You Don't Know It, the podcast uh, that you host. Um, Nick, welcome yeah. to you. And Joe, welcome to you. And I would like to take this moment to welcome Ian and Nick to the podcast. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, welcome to You Don't Know Lit, guys. Uh, as you know, uh, every week we pick a theme and um, and we pick two books within that theme and make them fight, uh, fight club style. Happy Black History Month. This month, we're going to be celebrating black authors. I don't know how to, else to set this up. Ian will probably have a much better way to say it. Ian, do you want to say it? <laughs> Not particularly. That's that's good. We're maybe spotlighting uh, black Ooh, history and black starring, authors. starring. Um, that's what we're doing. We're we're spotlighting black uh, authors and and books about black history. Um, we've uh, we've we've noticed uh, over the course of our of our reading that uh, perhaps our. Uh, well, I shouldn't speak for for Joe. My my first instinct was to go with what are commonly referred to as the classics, which tend to be or have tended to be exclusive of writers of color. So personally, I've made a, an effort in the last several months to include more women writers, more writers of color, to kind of diversify my bookshelf. And um, this is a great opportunity to build on that. Um, uh, Joe's done the same thing, though perhaps not for the same reasons. I'm not going to put words in his mouth. No, no, but you're doing, you're doing fine. Keep it up. Thank you. Um, yeah. I, I Joe also, is incredibly brilliant and <coughs> you, uh, wants yes. you all to know that he is impressed with your uh, lit heads, with your intelligence, and we're all just so smart. Right. That's why we're here. That's why you listen. The criticism level that this sort of diversifying move is that, well, you're saying that the classics aren't good, like Mark Twain isn't great or Shakespeare isn't great. And this is not at all what's happening. This is not at all saying uh, these people that we've studied for so long uh, are bad because they're white, or we're not going to read them because they're white. The idea is there is more, to, to quote a wonderful line from Shakespeare, there is a world elsewhere. There is more to good literature than the stuff that we've been told is classic, which is usually dead white guys. So the the effort here is not to kind of delegitimize established canonical white authors. The effort is to say, what about voices that have been ignored or voices that have uh, not gotten the the recognition that they should? Uh, that's why um, that's why my spouse recommended uh, incidents in the life of a slave girl. It's pushing the boundaries of what we talk about and what we read. So um, just to clarify, uh, Joe, tell me what your book is about. You have thirty seconds. Go, uh, Nick. Today, I want to tell you the story of a city. A it's a city one, no I doubt. met when I was first three years old, and what I loved most is she had so much soul. She said, "Excuse me, little Joey. I know you don't know me, but my name is Wendy, and I like to blow trees." Um, Nick, if you don't know by now, I'm talking about Shy Town, and I actually, Nick, want to tell you the story about a young black man living on the south side of Chicago who gets a great job, pulls himself up by his bootstraps and makes a better life for himself and his family. No, I'm just kidding again. He actually smothers a rich white girl and then hacks up her body and burns it in the family furnace. 
spoiler and no, you're well it's over like time. the first thing that happens in the <laughs> well book. over time well over time uh wow that was a trip it? a lot of lies I, in that yeah, 30 that seconds was, two lies um, two lies good two, storytelling there joe two uh, lies and the truth <laughs> ian ian DeJong, do you want to yes. take 30 seconds and tell me what your book is about this shouldn't be sure. hard to, to to go first here, Ian. I just want to let you know. <laughs> this uh, is a my, book, my book is inspired by Richard Wright's Native Son, mm. also by Ernest Hemingway. All and right, by Ian, jazz do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Great. You have you can take the 15 seconds left. Okay. My book is influenced by Richard Wright's Native Son. It's influenced by Ernest Hemingway and by jazz music. Ralph Ellison's 439-page award-winning 1952 Bildungsroman samples widely from American literature, pushes back against simplistic ideas of black art, and ultimately refuses to be categorized. It's about a young black man who experiences repeated rejection, failure, and violence, and the toll that takes on his identity. So I have a question. You brought uh, Invisible Man this week. Yeah. Is there any point in which the main character in this book is actually invisible? Does he have Thank you, Joe. That was my first question as well. Well, Am I going first? Is that... Is there like toilet paper? Does he cover himself with toilet paper in some sort of wacky situation? Yeah, like are there a lot of like... You know, it's him like, oh, turning invisible oh, and doing like yeah. maybe like sneaks into things. the Yeah, sneaks into the girl's locker room, maybe some romp. This yeah. is so this is really, really uh I guess sad. As I was preparing this, I wrote is out my thirty second coat. I wrote out my thirty second plot and I knew the first question you guys would ask <laughs> was So is he actually invisible? <laughs> Wait, we don't talk it? like that. Who the fuck was that supposed to be? <laughs> that, was, uh, that was an How unholy amalgam you. of the two of you. <laughs> How dare you? He sounds yep. like a cool guy. This amalgam. Amalgam. Uh, I would like an answer to Nick's trench coat question because when I picture the invisible man, I yeah. also picture a man wearing a trench coat and a fedora and sunglasses and, the Ray- and smoking Ray-Bans, a cigarette. Yeah. Does that mm-hmm. happen? Mm-hmm. So this book, this guy, <laughs> this fella does not become That's how I answer questions. He does not become transparent a la HG Wells mm-hmm. or the one ring. By the way, here's your here's your hobbit fact for the day. The one ring famously grants invisibility. But if you're wearing the one ring, you still cast a shadow when you're wearing it. If you're in <laughs> sunlight, which Shit. seems to defeat the purpose of invisibility somewhat. Right. But that's your hobbit yeah. fact. Uh, this book is not about transparency. You don't become okay. see-through. There are no fedoras or trench coats. Rather, this main character is invisible to everyone who meets him. The cultures he interacts with, both black and white cultures, neglect him. They ignore him. They erase him. It's not really about hijinks where somebody says, oh, nobody sees me, so I'll do whatever I want. It's actually kind of sad. It's about loss. It's about loss of identity, a loss of a place in the world. Um, he's just left alone. He's ignored. We never learn his name. Our main character goes unnamed throughout the whole book. Um He's just invisible. Now, I kind of believe in, you know, truth in writing here. Shouldn't invisible be in quotes? <laughs> no, Discuss. no, Nick, because the metaphorical <laughs> is as real as the physiological. No, it's not. It is. Whoa, Quote unquote, invisible man. Invisible you know, man. let us know what's going on on the page cover. And I would also assume that like when Elf Ellison was promoting this book, like if he was on a late night right. talk show, for example, when he right. said invisible Carson. man, he would do air quotes when he said invisible. <laughs> he True probably him. did. That's is it? 
Ian? No, it's it's not. He <laughs> the, the the prologue. Okay, guys, let me read you the first like three lines of this book. How long could we drag this joke on? Oh, I I bet it's the rest of the show. You think the rest of the ep? <laughs> I think it might I think it might have legs. I think it might carry forward into future weeks. <laughs> Until Ian just hangs up the phone and stops talking to us. <laughs> <laughs> and the second half of the show is just me talking. Oh, Ian, like, are you there? Yep. Ian, yep. are you there? I am. Can you read us the first couple pages? <laughs> just the first couple of lines. Oh. The book begins as follows. I am an invisible man. No, I'm not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I <laughs> one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I'm a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. So he answers this. Gets right to it. From the jump. Like these are the <laughs> first lines of the book. No, you chuckleheads. You're no, not going to get a funky like. might as well like, have just said no, Nick and uh, Joe. Not what you're thinking. <laughs> Nick, thank you for picking question? this book up. This is not what you think. This is actually more of a metaphor. Ian, it is I'm, a metaphor. I'm happy you read the first couple of lines because I think Nick's next question was, is he a spook? <laughs> is he a spook? <laughs> nope, I'm not spooky, we, Nick. Don't be afraid. If we, had, if we had asked Nick to kind of expand upon that, he would have said, <laughs> well, I'm wondering, is he a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe? Is he one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms? Yeah, it would have just kept going. Yeah. Um, okay, well, so this author is real inside my head right now. Um, okay, well, where do we go from here, Ian? Anything left to discuss? <laughs> There's so much. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this book is wild. The book is wild. Um, Ellison, our author, Ralph Ellison, is a fascinating character. So, yes, there is plenty, right. plenty to talk More about. More meat on this, this bone, huh? Now, this <laughs> is podcasting. Yeah. Now this is podcasting is a, a Star Wars podcast. Dang it! Oh, well, hey, we don't uh, our good that. our good friends over at Now This Is Podcasting. Um, I did uh, accidentally steal your thing, and I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, you independently arrived at it. Yeah, like, like yeah, those like, two guys who had invented oxygen. Right. So should like I talk about my book or what? I am waiting. Okay. Um, so uh, we've talked about we've already talked about the invisible thing. Um, yep. I just want to mention crossing it off my list. Yep. Good. Um, I just want to mention that, uh, there's a, there's a book kind of a little known book that you guys may have heard of or may not have heard of cause it's a little known. Um, yeah, it's little known. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, uh, a contender for the national book award, um, mm-hmm. in 1953 the and it lost. Um, like it's called, book. it's called the old man and mm-hmm. the sea. So I this don't think he's I've fucking heard with us. We know what that book is. Wait, wait. <laughs> yep. Nick saw through me. With us. You figured it, it out. It took forever. Just say the old man in the sea. What what happened? But that what happened? <laughs> so um my book this week, Invisible Man, beat Old Man in the Sea for the National Book Award. Um, <laughs> oh, how pissed it. was Ernest Hemingway? <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of probably not. He was fine. Kind of crazy. Um, so he shot it with a machine gun. <laughs> so he headbutted so had Ralph Ellison right in the nose. Oh, boy. Um, this this book did, this was uh, Ellison's first novel, and uh, it won the National Book Award. Oh, and then it was swinging. also his last. It was also his last oh, novel. Oh, wow. shut up. Yeah, so I could have done this for One Hit Wonders a few weeks ago. Uh, he's a really interesting guy. He he seems, okay, have you ever met those people who are so smart, they kind of freeze themselves? like? 
they just themselves. They just they get into the ramifications, right? Everything like everything mm-hmm. has to be perfect. Everything has to be like you figure out um, the the right way that all the stuff in the project has to fit together. And if it's not exactly right, you 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 re you reorient it and you keep mm-hmm. going until you make it perfect. And maybe you never arrive at perfection. Right. Like, like you spend so much time, like seeking perfection or thinking through perfection that you never actually start. Exactly. Or you, Mm. you never really finish. Sometimes you start and then you're tinkering for the rest of your life. So he, Mm. Ellison wrote this book, he wrote Invisible Man, and then he was tinkering on his second novel for the rest of his life. Oh, wow. He wrote this book. How long was that? Uh, it was a long time. This book was published in 1952. <laughs> okay. And then he died in 1994. So 42 wow. years. He was teeny. <laughs> so I like, much longer than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> but think about it, right? Like you write this book, which immediately, um, it wins the national, it beats Ernest freaking Hemingway. Yeah. God, that's got to feel good. You can't follow that up. Oh man. Well, that's it's really hard good. to follow it up, right? You, oh, I think it's terrifying. I don't think you're concerned good. about the sophomore slump. You say like, Who cares what do you got to do? Everything mm-hmm. twice. He did it once. That's amazing. Well, and the other thing is like, apparently he made this book sold invisible man sold so well right away. And then continued, continued to sell so well that Ellison didn't need the money. Well, right. So well, his that, that reputation it, was established. His okay. finances were fine. So he could really take his time. Oh, that, this man 42 did it right. Mm-hmm. Comes wow, in, 42 years. hit, out. You know, yep. I bet he got really got sick. Like for the rest of his life, I bet people asked him at cocktail parties and Christmases. They were like, so uh, you write anything lately? Or so, how, how's the next book coming? Oh, God. Yeah, well, there was so imagine that. There was actually, uh, he said, no, there was, there was a, there was a house fire. He his his home caught on fire, and he said, "Oh, uh, this was sixty seven, so fourteen. Oh, no, yeah, I know where this is going. Fifteen years after after Invisible Man comes out, uh, <laughs> he says, oh, oh, um, shoot. it got burned. The manuscript oh, of my second novel my got dog burned. Ate it. Sorry, guys. So oh, he no. he was Did aware. Did they find a cause of the fire? <laughs> yeah, I think the fire was, was legit, but actually his, his, um, uh, biographers have said, we kind of think maybe that he was, was a liar. True. <laughs> uh, he was, he was, he did freeze himself for 42 years though. He did write short stories and essays. He never wrote another novel. Um, huh. he seemed to have been extremely intelligent. Uh, he did go to Tuskegee in Alabama, um, which was kind of w- when he was when he was um, college age. This was like the place if you were um, a black intellectual, this was the place to go for college. Um, but they mm. wouldn't admit him because he was so brilliant, but because they needed a trumpet player for their orchestra. Oh. And he kind of came from humble beginnings and he got there and he realized everything was really sort of people scorned him for being low class. Um, Wait, can I just have a quick aside? Please. Tuskegee. Now, is this the same city where the experiments happened or took place? Yes. Yes. Okay. It is. What's the timeline there? Um, I'm so I'm I know about the experiments, but I'm not. I'm cer- guessing before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. This is uh, he was there like 50s or 60s. Um. Nope. He was there while it was happening. The oh, Tuskegee um, folks, huh. uh, litheads, if you're not aware, um, but that didn't come to light until much, much later. No, no. But they they went on. They went on for um, 
they went on for 40 years from 32 to 72. So right, heads, if right. you're not aware wow. about of, of this, um, in the, between 1934, 1932, sorry, in the early 1970s, um, the government, the U S government, um, studied black men at Tuskegee who, um, uh, had syphilis. They told these men that they were treating them for syphilis, but they were not. They were just watching the disease keep going, keep progressing. For 40 years. Wow. 40 years. And apparently, I, I didn't put those dots together, uh, Nick, but yes, um, Ellison got to Tuskegee in 1933. So I didn't realize it was like such a hub. I just thought it was like it took the name from. Nope. They were doing just- it there. Yeah, like they were doing it at that place. Random place. Like the fourth uh, word of that Wikipedia article is unethical. They're like, <laughs> they're like the Tuskegee study of untreated oh syphilis was an unethical experiment. That. Oh yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's interesting subject. you bring that up because one of the one of the wild things about this book, um, this is really fascinating. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for bringing that up because it helps under helps me understand. Well, it's the kind of knowledge and connections I bring. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, you're you're doing a good job there. Keep it Two up. Points. Um, one of the big kind of uh, weird, funky moments in this book is when uh, our main character, who is unnamed, well, he gets this good job at a paint factory, um, the Liberty Paint Factory, which is famous for the unblemished whiteness of its paint. Not symbolic at all. But he accidentally puts a bunch of color in the pure white paint. Mm. And then uh, later he gets catastrophically injured in a boiler explosion there. And then there's this long, weird passage where he's undergoing experimental electroshock therapy. And the doctors are all kind of like, they're all white and they're all kind of using him as this test subject for their potentially life altering, potentially like. Wait, you never put this together? (laughs) (laughs) Seems like. Yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't. uh, Yeah, yeah. So. Wow, yeah. So this could be read as a riff on, on the Tuskegee uh experiments yeah well, hold on now yeah but it seems like it's a direct is that isn't that this there, this must be the meaning behind this book correct well mm, oh well first of all nick that is like can, one part the, of the of the madness of this book there's so okay. much more funky beyond that but yes so it's a good uh maybe that's a good place to start um ian what is this book about <laughs> <laughs> okay so i'm gonna start i'm gonna start with a word um, and then we're going to come back to it to talk about it more. But um, the word is picaresque. Do either of you guys remember when this came up earlier in the podcast? Mm, it's not picturesque. I remember picturesque. that. Like, it's not no. like, oh, what a lovely scene with a picnic and, and a hill. Right. And, mm-hmm. right. It's not that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or about um, uh, Picard. It's mm-hmm. not about Picard either. About no, picaresque. Picard. Picaresque refers to, we, we talked about it with Huck Finn, where you have mm-hmm. a story where the the events aren't connected like narratively in terms of like this thing leads to this thing, which leads Mm. to this thing. It's more scenes here and there. So usually in picaresque novels, we've got a journey or we've got a a setting, a location. This story takes place in New York city for the most part. And we have a lot of his kind of experiences trying to more or less survive um, in New York city and, and sort of uh, survive psychologically and physically. So, Nothing in this book comes easy to him. Everything kind of goes wrong for him. Uh, our main character gets awarded a scholarship to a black college in the South. Cool. But then they tell him, you have to come to this dinner to, to be awarded this scholarship. And when he gets there, it's all these white people who helped um, 
put the scholarship together. And they say, you have to fight in a battle royal for our amusement before you can have the scholarship. And so he does. Wait, and it's, wait, wait. That happens? Like, in like the book. He, he shows up at this dinner and they're like, all right, here is your gladiator armor and here is your knife. <laughs> Do you knife mean a battle and- royale? Uh, sure. Yeah, battle okay. royale oh, with cheese. Okay. Um, with cheese, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> So he fights and it's it's really br- a brutal a brutal scene in the book. Uh he gets involved in politics. Uh he works at a black Marxist organization. Sorry, not a black Marxist organization, a Marxist organization which involves black people um but also involves white people. Uh it's called the Brotherhood and he gets into conflict there with police officers and um kind of a black nationalist movement which is led by a guy named Ross. He does this for a while and gradually the Brotherhood loses faith in him. He gets exiled from the group. Uh, and then he goes into hiding. Everyone mistakes him for this really cool uh, preacher, criminal, drug runner, pimp named Reinhardt. Everyone says, oh, Reinhardt. He's like, no, I'm not mm. Reinhardt. And there's this whole passage in the book. <laughs> All right, whatever, Reinhardt. <laughs> <laughs> Classic Reinhardt. Everyone's like mistaking him for Reinhardt. And he's like, I don't have a personality. I'm just kind of this blank space. And everyone puts like, everyone thinks I'm Reinhardt now, apparently. Yeah. Um, and then finally, at the end of the book, he confronts his nemesis, the black nationalist, Ross. Um, and they have a, a spear fight. And then he goes to hide. A what? A spear fight with this a book, spear. I- this is an a, actual This book sounds weird. An actual and, spear. Uh, I don't know how to say this. Are we supposed to believe that this happened? Is it supposed to be like unrealistic? What's the like, setting here? Yeah. What's up with the spear? Oh, fight? like fantasy. What? Okay. Are you guys familiar with- Is um, this an invisible spear? Like a metaphor again? <laughs> no, no. He rams He rams the spear through uh, Ross's face, like through his cheeks. It's real. Okay. It's very real. Um, okay. Are you guys familiar with- uh, the name Franz Kafka. No. I, oh, I am. He wrote a book Kafka. called The Metamorphosis, mm-hmm. which the first, like the first line of this book is, uh, I awoke from, uh, sorry, um, Gregor Samsa awoke from troubled dreams to discover he had been transformed into a monstrous bug. And the whole book right. is very kind of like matter of fact about this dude who turns into a cockroach. Mm-hmm. So Kafka-esque is a word uh, which has been used, it's coined to describe situations, books, stories aesthetics where you've got a very matter of fact like oh yeah and then they did electroshock therapy on me and i lost part of my identity because they zapped my brain too much this kind of thing is presented very matter of factly but you also have a sense it's kind of not quite real Mm -hmm. so we get to the end and it's not actually clear whether this is his fantastical uh, cleaning of his fevered brain because he's locked in a hole underground or maybe it did all actually happen. It's not, it's kind of like it ends with uncertainty. Did he actually have a spear? Did he not have a spear? Mm-hmm. Did he actually um, have to do that battle royal or not? I'm a, I'm a little confused at the premise of this book. Yeah. Okay. Is this hard to explain? It, oh my goodness. Okay. So talking about this book in, in 20 minutes for this podcast is like, it was so daunting. Mm, you know, those, you know, those TV shows, or those movies, those episodes of TV shows, those movies where the character looks at the, at the camera and is like, you're probably wondering how I got oh, here. I love that. <laughs> I love it. This yeah. is kind of like, it's like that. So, so the story starts with him 
Um, he's like, I'm an invisible man. I'm surrounded by light bulbs powered by electricity. I've stolen from the city light and water company. Um, you're probably wondering how I got here. Yeah. And then we get his whole life story and there's these fantastical elements just sort of like dropped in there. It's not clear if they're, and then we get to the end and he's like, so here I am. And then he says some things about protest and about race. And he's like, well, maybe it jumps around in time and different. Yeah. We, we start, we start off fantasy or would you call it fantasy? Fantastical. I would say I use this I use this term in, in a previous week. I would say magical realism. It's like yeah, right. maybe it's realistic, maybe it's not. It's kind of ex- it's definitely experimental. He's playing around with stuff. Uh and there's just there's so this is a long book. There's a lot to unpack here. So now this this week is big city. Um big city. Big si- big oh city books. <laughs> yep. uh, I'm not sure what that theme means at all. Mm-hmm. No one does. Um, the lit heads are wondering. This, okay, Great. I think it's a, so. We're I, all not sure. No, <laughs> at least we're aligned on that. I, um, I think Ian. Ian, would you say that New York City is a character in this? Book? Oh my gosh, I <laughs> hate that trope. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I, I think, um, but answer the question. You guys know those video games where everything takes place like in one city. Like your your Arkham cities or your Grand Theft's Auto. Sure, Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, right. I think there's a there is a kind of narrative where everything sort of takes place in a very specific bounded area, and that area gives it the flavor that it has. So, um, Flavor Town. Yeah, Flavor Town. This is I would say New York City is this particular Flavor Town. Basically, like, is this book takes place in Flavor Town? Basically, yeah, is what you're saying. Absolutely. I think okay. this book this this gets to what I was saying about the. The picaresque. So, so much happens in this book. It really gets going when it gets to New York City, especially to Harlem. Um, this this main character, his experiences are so wide ranging from industrial accidents to medical experimentation to political activism to riots and spear fighting. They need this huge setting and everything can anything can happen in a city that's big enough. I think that's the thing that that makes this a big city book and the thing that kind of connects all of these disparate events if you've lived in a big city, and I would say Milwaukee is kind does of... Milwaukee, I was going to say Milwaukee. That's pretty mm, big. Does it count? I would say... So So I lived downtown in Milwaukee, and you mm. see a lot of really weird stuff. And I yeah. think it's that that's directly related to how big the city is. The bigger the city, the weirder the stuff you'll see. We're like the 102nd city. <laughs> the people we're alienating today are Milwaukeeans. <laughs> our, our brethren. <laughs> Can you tell us about the overt message? And then we should probably move on to, to Joe. So so the message thing is really interesting. Um, Ellison's, Ellison was himself involved with Marxist organizations in the late 40s. And um, he was actually friends with Richard Wright, who we'll hear about in a moment. Um, and he was involved with sort of like black activism in the 40s and 50s. But he got really kind of fed up with it. And he has some really good quotes, which I don't have time to get to, where he's just like, this is all terrible. This is the worst. They're doing a terrible job. Marxism and the sort of like supposedly positive stuff, like Marxism and socialism says, we're going to uplift the working class. He's like, that doesn't happen. And and he experienced this kind of classic classism from the people at Tuskegee. He had seen how there was not really like such a thing as one black experience. Like there were, there were black people who were 
trying to be white. And there were black people who uh, didn't really care about other black people. And there are black people who really did care about other black people. He's like, this is not so simple. So I would say this book really, he says, I'm not trying to write a protest story. I'm not trying to write a story about, oh, how bad it is that like my black brethren are being brutalized. There's some of that, sure. There's racism, sure. But he's also saying like, Black organizations let black people down all the time. Um, Marxist organizations, which are supposed to be like sell themselves as so progressive and so forward looking, mm. they let black people down all the time. Um, Would you say, Ian, that maybe the the takeaway here is that we're all failures? <laughs> well, well, like I think that's one of the really sad things. And I've tried hard to de-emphasize the the downer element of this book. We all suck. Nobody's really doing anything good here. <laughs> this book is a is a real downer. Like it ends with him saying, Great. "Hey, I'm invisible, and and maybe a lot of other and people so are, are too." You. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like it's not. I'm I'm strange. It's strange that I'm invisible. The idea is like a bunch of other people who are invisible too, and we don't know if they're invisible because we can't see them. So life isn't life isn't just black and white. There mm-hmm. is a lot of gray area. And I think he's the overt message, if any, is people get lost in that gray area. People get lost between the extremes and really desperately lost. Downer. Sounds Man, fun. another downer. Yeah, it's a downer. Yeah. Uh, hey, another downer. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, guys. Thanks for bringing another downer. Can we rename this podcast Downers with Nick, Ian, and Joe? <laughs> Fantastic, people. Ian. Thank you for another people. uplifting book. We've been talking about a couple of downers this week. Yeah. Do we have maybe something that's not so, what's, what's the word, dismal? Like an upper, mm, like a cocaine. Right. Oh, like like an upper, an upper, like Adderall an upper. or speed or meth. Um, yes. So I was, now that I, w- I didn't have anything, um, but then you said meth. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I know what we can do next week. Um, maybe success stories. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yes, I will bring, I will bring a really, really strange, really strange success story. Um, okay. The story of a, a self-made man uh, who was um, rags to riches. Oh my goodness! Uh, riches, riches might be overselling it a little bit, but he does become a <laughs> successful businessman. Um, I'm gonna bring rags to life lessons. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bring the interesting narrative of Alada Equiano, and that is the name of it. He titled his book "The Interesting Narrative of Alada Equiano." His oh, name. Oh, I feel like is that that's his name? like yes. Is that the author's? Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's a cool name. I feel like calling your own book "The Interesting Narrative" though is a little presumptuous. It's a little like John Malkovich here. Well, yeah. Well, it's like I mean, Jack you Black, did the greatest. You did bring world. Alex Trebek saying the answer is my life. So <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and if we want to talk about rags to riches stories or success stories, I want to talk about a book that I, that I loved very, very much. It's a book called Born a Crime by comedian and daily show host Trevor Noah. And it is about growing up in apartheid South Africa and kind of the lessons that he learned along the way. Surprisingly, not a downer, like not a downer, really a, an inspiring, fun story. It's a success story. It's a I'd success say he's story. pretty successful. He's doing okay.
Hey, Joe. Yep. Tell me about Native Son. Now, is it? I know Ian's book was The Invisible Man. Now, is no. your book The Native nope, Son? It wasn't. Oh, my book good. is the. My book is not The Invisible Man. It's Invisible Man. The mm-hmm. capital T. The. That's I kind think, of a waste of space for books, huh? Right. Like it doesn't just get, even that get out indexed. Of there. Like when you put it in the index, it, it later like that the just gets dropped. So why even put it in there? And really, what's the deal with airline food? The old mm-hmm. man and the sea. What's the band that everybody says the, but it's not the? The oh, Kinks. The Beatles. Everyone, everyone thinks they're the Beatles, but it's actually just Beatles. No, inaccurate. I think That's you're thinking of the Kinks. The Rolling Stones. The White Stripes. The, the. That's another one. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that one. The Motorhead. Well, I hope I hope you can do better at pitching this book, Joe, than uh, naming band names. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to start as as Ian was speaking, as I always do. I took extensive notes, and I want to start Lovely. by telling you the things Read that our books have in common. Um, number one, my book is also a huge downer. Number two. <laughs> Good to get out in front of that, Joe. (laughs) Yep, I love it. uh, Classism is definitely a a rampant theme throughout it. Um, Number three, there's knife fights. Although, Ian, are there knife fights in your book or just spear fights? There are knives and there are fighting. There's fighting with knives. I would not say there are knife fights, though. Would you say that knives are out? Yes, knives are out and there are knife fights. I, I lied, there are knife fights. Okay, in Native Son, knives are in and there are knife fights. Um, There is kind of an exploration of Marxism. There's kind of a caper and a chase. Uh, And there is also an extended metaphor, not about white paint being mixed with color, but about the blanket of white snow that covers the Mm. second city. Ah, they went with snow. Mm -hmm. They went with snow. It was brave. It was brave. I Um, also, I feel like maybe Ralph Ellison like stole that from Richard Wright because they did, they knew each other. Guys and Richard, they were they were friends. Yeah, Uh, Joe, are you suggesting that Ralph Ellison stole the literary technique of using white as symbolic? I believe Richard Wright (laughs) invented that. Oh, Richard, you did a good job there. I think I'll take that. It says in my notes here that um, Richard Wright invented the symbolism of a white blanket covering everything. Fascinating. uh, So yeah, so Ralph Ellison is a horrible literary plagiarist. That's good. Joe, I am looking forward to you just tearing the author apart as you like to do on this show. <laughs> no, um, I have. But maybe before we do that, you can. Uh, um, I'm sorry. Is I, Actually, is there anything else about this author that you'd like to share? Uh, about this before author? Before we get, on, get into the nice meaty book? No, no, that's that's it. Um, I, 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 I do have a couple things about Richard Wright, I guess, if that's what you're asking. I'm out of similarities between uh, Native Son mm. and the Invisible Man. I like it. All right. He was, um, just a couple quick bullet points. He was born in a sharecropper's cabin in Mississippi. When we talk about dirt poor, he was actually dirt poor, like dirt floor, dirt poor. Um, his father abandoned the family when he was five. His mother was incapacitated by a stroke before he was 10. Um, in 1927, he's like, Hey, this sucks. I'm going to Chicago, (laughs) which also (laughs) sucked. (laughs) I think that was probably his first mistake, going to Chicago and expecting things to be better there. To better, yeah. Um, He did find a job there. Things got a little bit better. He found a job there in the post office. It enabled him, as he later said, to at least go to bed with a full stomach every night for the first time in his life. I don't get it. There's nothing to get. He was able to eat. Uh, That's that's what his post office job brought him. (laughs) 
Oh, I thought he meant like people were mailing food and he would just eat that food. Nope. Um, so in a capitalist system in which we live, uh, people exchange your time and skills for money. And you can gotcha. use that money to trade for goods and services, as we all know from The Simpsons. And um, so he not bought food. food. He bought gotcha. food with okay. us, yes. I thought it was like a Thanksgiving type situation where people mail turkeys. Keep going, Joe. Yeah, he became active in some literary circles. Um, in 1933, he was elected as like kind of a big deal bigwig in the Chicago branch of uh, of the John Reed Club, which was a writer's organization. In 1935, he published a novel called Cesspool about the day, a little on the nose here, in the life of a black postal worker. Mm. Do you think he drew upon like his experiences for that? Or was it just like completely- um, I think it was- well, Ian Did has taught a us a word this week called Kafka-esque, in which something like Kafka. like crazy happens, but you just accept it as true. Um, I think I think this was no, that's classic not a good Kafka. joke. Yeah, classic Kafka. Um, nobody published his novel. Because oh. maybe it wasn't very good. I think a lot of Wait, first novels Na- aren't Native Son, nobody published it? No, nobody published Cesspool. But then he put oh, together sorry. a book of short stories called Uncle Tom's Children, which was admired in the reviews but people like they found it kind of a heartwarming tale and Uh richard wright hated that he said he said i found that i have written a book in which even bankers daughters could read and weep over and feel good about and then the quote doesn't continue to say this but after reading native son it's very clear that the next sentence was and I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> I'm going to. <laughs> he was trying to write a downer. Like this is him trying to be a downer. Okay. Is he trying to be cutting and gritty? Oh, if he's trying to be cutting and gritty, he succeeds. He okay. writes. He writes a book in which um, it, it, I guess just a very little bit of a plot in this book. He writes a book following Bigger Thomas. Bigger Thomas is about a 20-year-old black guy south side of Chicago. He lives in a one-room apartment. Doesn't matter that he's black. uh, Yeah, turns out it does. It's super central (laughs) to the theme. Okay. Um, He lives in a one-room apartment. Um, He doesn't really have a lot going on. Like, he's got these kind of, like, like like crumb bum friends that he hangs out with They're They spend their days kind of like shooting pool and uh, planning how to rob people. Um, they, he, he's, yeah, things aren't going like super well okay. in his life, but. So he is a struggling start. He's a struggling start, but he gets an offer for a really good job. And that really good job is he is, has an offer um, through like a, like an aid organization to get hooked up with this guy named Dalton, um, a guy named Henry Dalton. Henry Dalton is a capitalist and he is incredibly wealthy and he wants uh, Bigger Thomas to chauffeur for him, his wife and his daughter, who's kind of like a socialite. Like she's like in the movies. She's kind of like a uh, Paris Hilton or uh, maybe Kim Kardashian is a more more, uh, contemporary. (laughs) (laughs) So Nick, um, I know there's rules on this podcast. I know that we uh, avoid only nece- or we have only necessary spoilers in here, and I do have a necessary spoiler for you. Interesting. Avert your ears, listeners. Okay. One I'll of take the f- this one on the nose for you. This book's about 400 pages long. On page 80, 85, um, 
a series of events has transpired over the first like couple days of Bigger Thomas's employment with the Daltons that he smothers Mary Dalton uh, to death. Uh, he covers mm. her mouth and nose and kills her accidentally. Uh, it should be said accidentally. Panics. Um, sorry. Yeah. So uh, we'll talk about it. Um, okay. He panics. He doesn't know what to do. So he brings her body to the basement of the mansion. He chops her up and he puts her in the family furnace. Uh, and that really is oh the event boy. that kicks okay. off a whole bunch of this. Of this. Um, I'm going to pause now for questions. Would you say this is like an inciting incident? Oh. <laughs> okay. I have a question. Yes. And then you can choose which one to answer. <laughs> Did he accidentally chop her up too? Okay. <laughs> was this all just kind of like he was falling down the stairs and boy, I'm going to, I'm going to answer both those questions. I think, uh, Ian, I would say this is, the- is this truly unavoidable Joe? What I mean, come on. <laughs> I, I- happens halfway in the middle of the book. Is it really unavoidable? It happens on page 80 of a 400 page book. It's definitely unavoidable because like everything that follows, like the the majority of this book is incited by this incident. Yes, this is an inciting incident. And Nick, does he accidentally chop her up? No, he accidentally kills her. But the chopping up turns out to be a pretty calculated decision with uh, when Bigger finds himself with a dead rich white girl in her bedroom. Okay. Hmm. I'm going to dig deep for a, for a metaphor here. Um, are you guys familiar with the game of dominoes? <laughs> Somewhat. I like are, how any question <laughs> by, I think actually both of you now do this. Any question is met with, are you familiar with the most random topic imaginable? Right. Well, are imagine you familiar that you- with dominoes? <laughs> what? Imagine that you took dominoes, like this game with numbers and and tiles. Imagine that instead of playing the game of dominoes as it was intended, though, you took these dominoes and stood them up on end in maybe a sequence of sort, right? So they're like Mm. next to each other so that if maybe one domino would fall, it would tip over the next one. It would cascade into the next one until eventually all the dominoes fell down. Uh, Kind of. I could probably say yes, but have you played the game sequence? (laughs) (laughs) Now, there's a game, guys, I think we can bring this together. There's a game called Horse, um, which you play with a basketball. Now, there's this game called Bingo. Okay. <laughs> Such a stupid joke. <laughs> Continue, Joe, please. So, um, to answer your question, Ian, this is the first domino to fall, right? Mm-hmm. Like. <laughs> <laughs> just use the expression move on (laughs) i thought with these little black little square rectangle squares they held weight (laughs) they have dots on them um so joe yep so uh he acts this lady to bits what happens Uh next well, I don't want to say what happens next. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. It, well, now it, that's the problem with spoilers. You say one of them, it gets it gets me hooked. All right. Now I just want to know. Now I just want to know what happens. Well, so okay, okay, you won't tell me what happens next. So I mean, but you you said it's central to talking about this. So is this like? Yeah. A- so yeah. Good point. So him, his experience with Mary Dalton is the first domino to fall, and one of the things that's really captivating about this book. I I teach this book in my American literature class. 
One of the things that's really captivating about it, and one of the things that students really like about it is for the first two sections, this it's split into three different sections, book one, book two, and book three. Um, for the first two sections, this book is super plot driven. Like stuff happens in this book. And unlike Ian's kind of picaresque novel, um, Ian, am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. You're saying it perfectly. Well Perfect. done. Yeah. Uh, you can unlike, take a pronunciation point for that, Joe. Thank you. I will mark down my pronunciation point. Um, unlike Ian's picaresque novel, like this is very much like it, it's procedural. I like it is like one thing happens, it directly causes the next thing. I, it directly causes the next thing, much like um, uh, the aforementioned dominoes metaphor. Yeah, said dominoes. Yes. So, so if you knock a domino into a different domino, will the first domino fall and then the second one falls after that? Ian, please. We, yeah, you, you we can have back. used so much precious <laughs> precious time up with this game I, can, situation. Can I just say I'm so proud of myself. This game debacle. <laughs> hey, you guys ever played Boggle? <laughs> Well, imagine that something was like crazy and scrambled in your mind. You might say that it boggles the mind. Are you guys familiar with eggs? <laughs> so you know there's several ways to cook eggs, right? One of them being scrambled. It'd be kind of like those eggs. What? Uh, <laughs> Joe, Joe, keep going, please. Yeah. <laughs> At the beginning of this novel, Bigger um, is sitting in his apartment. He doesn't, like, he's 20 years old and he doesn't really know what comes next in life. And, like, we remember being 20 years old. Like, we've had experiences like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't really know what comes next. But unlike, I, I, I don't want to speak for you guys, I guess, but, like, when I imagined my own future at 20 years old, there were kind of a lot of paths in front of me. There were kind of a lot of possibilities in front of me. When Bigger imagines his future, all he sees is a blank wall, right? Like they they go into some detail on this in the book where he imagines his future and he just sees this wall that he runs into, like this blank white wall that he hits like over and over and over again. I see where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Bigger takes really the only path that's in front of him. Like he has this offer for this fantastic job um, and through this kind of series of but I guess I want to be a little more specific than that. He's offered this fantastic job with the Daltons and anybody on the outside of this looking in would think like, holy smokes, this is bigger's chance to like, to like break out of the life that he was born into, right? Like here he has this good job with this good employer, sure. et cetera. But as you meet these people, the Daltons, um, the, the main Daltons that we see are Henry Dalton, the capitalist and Mary Dalton, his kind of free spirited socialite daughter. As you meet these people, you get not the sense you, you, you are overtly told how both of these people are part of the problem. Like both of these people are as much as they feel like they're helping bigger, as much as they feel like they are presenting bigger a way out of his life, that they are systemically keeping bigger in his life through kind of a variety of mechanisms. And um, I, I'd like to just talk about one that points this out. Sure. Henry Dalton hires bigger through like this program. Uh, Henry Dalton is a huge donator to the NAACP. Um, he employs black, like young black kids from the South side of Chicago. He buys ping pong tables for the local like outreach program, like the youth outreach program. And like, mm-hmm. he really prides himself on giving people like bigger a chance at employment. Okay. 
However, the way that Mr. Dalton makes his money is through real estate. Um, and he makes it through specifically, he owns a lot of these buildings, like a lot of these tenements. Yeah, like the, he owns a lot of these tenement buildings that like the black people on the South Side live in. There's a lot okay. of systemic, systemic problems. Like they- um, Like low income or what does that mean? Yeah, like low income housing. Okay. They don't pay, like they live in a crappy apartment, like a crappy one room apartment with like these sure. massive black rats in it. They pay a higher rent than they would if they lived outside of the, of the tenements that they live in because they're only allowed to live in those tenements, right? Like black people can't get an apartment outside of this neighborhood. So they pay a higher rent for a worse apartment, right? Mm. Oh, that okay. that's the system that Henry Dalton profits from. And he's incredibly wealthy. Oh, so the guy who's giving him all this opportunity is the same one who's keeping it, him down. Gotcha. You got it. Exactly. Okay. It right? all just clicked. Got yeah, it. You've nailed it. You've absolutely nailed it. Right. So like, it's easy as a reader to look at this and be like, oh, Henry Dalton thinks he's helping. Like Henry Dalton, the philanthropist, right? Like yeah. thinks he's helping, but he's part of the problem. Right. That idea of systemic, systemic like oppression, it just runs rampant. And everywhere that bigger turns, like as one domino falls after another, everywhere the bigger turns, like he finds himself just running into some new version of Henry Dalton. Hmm. Students like it. Um, and, and I always think it's a fun book to teach because students like, I guess I don't know how to say this. The themes are low hanging enough that students certainly mm. like, like they get it, right? Like you can't read this book and not get it, right? But also like, I think it's a fun book to teach because like wild stuff happens in it. And it's fun to talk about the wild stuff that happens with students. Wrap it up, Joe. Things go poorly for Bigger Thomas. I always like to ask my students at, uh, as one of the culminating activities that we do is I say, look, things go poorly for Bigger Thomas in this novel. At what point in this novel was he doomed? Mm. Right? Like, like, what is the event? Like, what thing happened in which, like, there was no turning back? The point of no return. Point. Yeah. The point of no return. And it's always pretty interesting because students kind of start kind of toward the end of the book and then they move backwards and they move backwards and they move backwards. And boy, to get to the point of no return in this, you're talking, I mean, it's maybe not page 80 when he when he suffocates Mary Dalton, right? Like, but it's not much before that, right? Like the point of no return is really, really early in this book oh, for bigger. I thought of a question. Yeah. And again, this might all be cut out. Um <laughs> How do you accidentally kill somebody? Yeah, so it's funny that you say I that mean, because that is. I the, just need to know this because we should. I we should be aware it. of this because, like, if we were to accidentally, you know, we don't want to fall foul of anything. Yeah, I like to know about ways, you know, new things like this. So okay, well, let what, me tell you. How, I need to know. Let me tell you how bigger does it. Um, and and feel free to to cut this out if you want. Um. Mm -hmm. Mary goes out and gets drunk with her boyfriend, Jan, right? And they really like kind of go and live it up on the town. And they're really like, they, they, they want to hang out with bigger. Like they keep like being like, oh, take us to a black bar. Like take us to like one of your places. Right. And Ugh. they like, and, and bigger. Just, that's annoying. Yeah. Bigger really hates it. It's how not about, just how about go to your own fucking bar. <laughs> <laughs> so basically on bigger's like first day working, Mary gets hammered, right? Like Mary gets drunk and bigger helps her up to her bedroom. Okay. He helps her up the stairs. He helps her up to the bedroom. And as he's kind of putting her to bed, 
her mom comes in. Now her mom's blind and like can't see that bigger is there, but like bigger basically is like, Oh shit. Mom's here. I'm a black dude. It's two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. I'm with this young white girl. Mom cannot know that I'm here. So he covers Mary's mouth, right? Like he just with his hand, he like covers her mouth and nose, right? Like just to like stop her from talking. And Mm -hmm. in the course of time that mom is in the room, he suffocates her. Mm -hmm. Right. Like he suffocates Mary. Mary dies. And then after mom leaves, he goes, oh, no, I'm a black dude. It's two o'clock in the morning. I have a dead white girl in this bedroom. What do I do? Here's a here's a quick follow up question. Mm -hmm. Can you suffocate somebody? Yeah. So or do they pass out first? Yeah. So one of the biggest challenges teaching this book is students cannot get past like that (laughs) That? moment like like that moment they're like you can't accidentally suffocate somebody or alternatively like you know like they cannot get past it Um, okay the short answer is i don't know right i I, okay i have no idea now ian you're a doctor any insight here Mm -hmm. so when a hobbit is bleeding out i always say the first thing you don't do is cover its mouth you let okay. let it breathe. Oh, that's let smart. Let it breathe. Yeah. It's like a fine red wine. Absolutely. You know, um, but mm-hmm. I would like to point out that Ian has the benefit of a PhD, a university yes. education, right? That's like true. Bigger Thomas would not have the same advantages and or the same extensive Hobbit knowledge. Are you guys familiar? Let me let me put it in this in terms you guys might understand. Yeah. Are you familiar with the game of Yahtzee? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Now I was thinking of more operation. I thought that would be a more insightful <laughs> yeah, game. That, yep, that's a good one too. It's like that. Anyway. Huh, sounds good. While I deliberate, do you guys want to uh, hawk this show for me? Hey, I want to talk today to the big city lit heads. <laughs> hey, I think you should get aggressive towards these lit heads. <laughs> hey, lit heads. <laughs> hey, lit head. Hey, lit heads, listen you. up. I'm talking to the big city lit heads and the little city lit heads and the medium city lit heads medium city. and the rural lit heads. In fact, lit heads from every walk of mm-hmm. life. Coast I have coast. some recommendations for you today and Joe might also have some. Joe, please mm-hmm. feel free to jump in whenever you'd like. Okay, here's my first recommendation. Go out into the street of the big city or little or medium <laughs> or whatever and loudly mm-hmm. proclaim your affection for this podcast. That's the first your first task. Then come back mm-hmm. in, head over to our social media uh, at you don't know lit on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, or the website you don't know lit podcast.com. Tell us what to do. Tell us what to read. Last, my last recommendation is this. Since it's Black History Month, maybe you should make an effort to read a book by a black author this week. Maybe this is already part of your regular habit. Maybe it's not. I don't care. What I'm saying is expanding the canon starts with expanding our own reading habits. So read a book by a black author. That's my recommendation. And the final recommendation is the game of dominoes. Um, It can be played in more than one way, guys. You don't just have to match up the numbers and lay the tiles on their side. If you lay them on end or if you stand them on end, rather, um, you can really get like kind of an exciting uh, climactic event. So dominoes. Sounds like a really dynamic game, Joe. Thank you for bringing that to the table with us. Um, Joe, you lose. Uh, Ian, you mentioned mentioned a quote. Uh, I'd like to hear that. Um, if Ian can't find this quote, I do have one ready. If you <laughs> yeah, we know. To. We know. <laughs> I'll, Nick, I'll give you. I'll give you a, a choice. You can have a quote about a spear fight, or you can have a quote about diversity. Which one do you want? Uh, I uh, think we know which one Nick is going to pick. Oh man, you suck, Ian. You know I want to hear about spears, but I gotta pick diversity. Oh, well, I think the, we should the, spear fight, fight. the spear fight quote has some good no, messages in it I too. Got, so can't not pick diversity. Okay. Okay. It's really setting me up, but also teasing me.
You got to read the book. Tease, Ian. You got to read yeah. the book to, to know All about right. the spear fight. Tell us about diversity, Ian. <laughs> um, this is in the this is in the end of the book when our nameless main character uh, is reflecting on kind of what he's experienced um, and all the stuff, whether it's real or not, that he's gone through. And he's talking uh, about the world as he sees it. He kind of has this bully pulpit um, because he's the first person narrator, so he can say this stuff. And he says the following. Whence all this passion toward conformity anyway? Diversity is the word. Let man keep his many parts, and you'll have no tyrant states. Why, if they follow this conformity business, they'll end up by forcing me, an invisible man, to become white, which is not a color, but the lack of one. Must I strive toward colorlessness? But seriously, and without snobbery, think of what the world would lose if that should happen. America is woven of many strands. I would recognize them and let it so remain. It's winner take nothing that is the great truth of our country or of any country. Life is to be lived, not controlled. And humanity is won by continuing to play in the face of certain defeat. Our fate is to become one and yet many. This is not prophecy, but description. Thus, one of the greatest jokes in the world is the spectacle of the whites busy escaping blackness and becoming blacker every day, and the blacks striving toward whiteness, becoming quite dull and gray. None of us seems to know who he is or where he's going. Now tell us about the spears. <laughs> uh, yeah, we all suck. That's the real lesson. That's, that's the lesson to remember, everybody. Also um, throw spears at people. That also, it works. Spears, are, spears are very effective. It works well for our main character. Congratulations, Ian. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs>